Welcome to the Happy Whole You Podcast. I'm Anna Marie Frank, your brain health and wellness expert. Here we talk about all things wellness with a focus on how your brain functions. So the daily impact of our physical, nutritional, financial, even spiritual lives, how they impact our brain, including how we navigate all of our relationships on a daily basis, all have a major impact on how our brain functions. So get ready to rewire your biology and your brain because we have a lot of great information ahead. Hey, you guys. All right. So we have another guest on the podcast today, Dr. Aaron Hartman, and he helps people with chronic health issues to essentially restore their health. What I find very interesting and I get excited about is when an allopathic doctor starts to open up and look towards more integrative and holistic medicine practices due to their own life circumstances and things that happen in their life. And so I'm excited for him to share his story today. And he has so many great tips for you guys. So let's go ahead and get into it. All right, Dr. Hartman, I am so excited to share you with my audience today and welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) So you are a board certified family medicine doctor, but you also got into integrative holistic medicine and I'm assuming that didn't happen right away, (laughs) right? So if you could share with the audience, how did you evolve into, you know, a doctor that does really looks at the big picture of things? I mean, the, the biggest driver for this actually was who I married and how we made our family. So my wife is a pediatric occupational therapist who works with kids with special needs. In the OT world and the PT world, a lot of what they do is, is individualized. It's finding a care, a care plan for the individual based on their stroke, based on whatever the kids' issues are. And so that for me was a little bit out, you know, outside the box, so to speak, because that's not the norm, right? And we, one of her patients, we ended up bringing into our, our house to adopt and she eventually became my daughter. And so early on, you know, you have a kid with cerebral palsy and you know, there's a lot of neurological issues. She was never supposed to walk or talk, you know, when we first had her, you know, we weren't sure if she'd even be able to um, understand what we we're saying. She was really pretty bad off. And, um, but my wife saw something there. And so we just kind of went all in and she was about two-ish and um, the pediatric gastroenterologist was like, well, what we need to do for her to gain weight, cause she's too small is put a feeding tube in her stomach. So we can pour formula in her stomach so we can put meat on her bones. And my wife and I talked about it and we're like, well, that's going to affect speech development. That's going to affect crawling. That's going to affect a whole, whole a lot of neurological issues. Like chewing and swallowing is a huge thing for kids developmentally. And yeah. we just, we just opted out of that. Cause we're like, this is our view for our daughter. She is going to be someone who's going to walk and talk in the future. We didn't know what that looked like or what it looked like, but we didn't accept that this was as good as it gets. And so we opted out of that. And six months later, my wife researching found a growth chart for kids with CP and my daughter was right in the middle. And so that was my first moment, like, wait, the specialist that all they do, this is this, they had no idea there's actually a growth chart for my daughter. And she was actually in the middle. And they were going to do a medical procedure to her that would actually have changed the trajectory of her health. And that was the first time I learned, I need to question, <laughs> I need to question the experts, you know, I don't want to say question authority per se, but you know, like yeah, it doesn't, if, it, if, it, if it doesn't resonate, it doesn't feel right. I mean, I need to, someone explain better to me than just put some meat on her bones. And the exact same thing happened about a year or two later with her eyes. She has strabismus and her eyes kind of bobble around a little bit. And the eye, eye doctor was like, we should do eye surgery on your little daughter. So she looks for cosmetic reasons. So she looks more normal. 
And it's like, well, is that going to help like her eye development? Is that going to help anything? And it was just, and so we found an older eye doctor that was like, you know, like, you know, you don't need to do this. It's, you can wait and do it later. And so we just did eye patching and a bunch of other stuff. And so that took us off the path, realizing, you know what, we need to, every decision for our daughter, we really need to dive into this, whether it's diet, which is where it started, where it's, you know, doing SNP or gene testing, whether it's doing metabolomic testing, peptides, we just need to really take deep dives and stuff. And that just, once you get off the, the beaten path, there's no coming back, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like once you get to Oz and realize there's a, this is a world of color, you can't go black to black and white anymore, you know? And so that kind of led us off the path and kept on learning and learning and learning. And now I started saying, hey, wait, let me try some of this with patients. Maybe someone with chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia, maybe they have yeast issues that might help. I don't know. Maybe naltrexone, low-dose naltrexone might be beneficial. And start just finding patients that are open to it and, and working with them. Say, hey, I've been studying the stuff, you know, and any patients you build trust. And so I did that for, I don't know, maybe almost 10 years before I opened up my practice of my separate independent practice in functional medicine. And that was kind of how this journey started for me. And I'm still off the beaten path and I'm, I'm further off the beaten path now than I was five years ago. And it, but it's really cool. Cause every time I find a patient that I, I have these patients that challenge me where it's like, you know, I've got this one, a patient has this thing called um, autoimmune autonomic ganglionopathy. And there's like 50 cases a year. And basically her whole GI tract just stopped working. Well, she actually has mold issues. She had Lyme issues. She has sleep apnea. She's hypermobile. These are all things that I actually have therapies for. And um, every time I get her doing better and she takes the next level, she crashes. And it's almost like my information I'm learning. I need to keep on studying. So when these patients have their downs, I've got another set of um, tools in my toolkit. And that's kind of been my practice for the last five years is learning more things, being pushed by my daughter, and my family, but also by my patients who I, I know there's gonna be a point in time where I have no more tools in my toolkit. What's the next level what's the next thing and so that it's exciting but it's also challenging because i need time to yeah. like do this research and study and so it's um yeah that's kind of part of my my journey and my story oh my gosh i and that's the thing is like it's always we're always learning and as we were talking about before we even started which i want to get into that in a minute is a lot of stuff that's coming up as new cutting edge is really stuff that you know, in Chinese medicine, 2,500 years ago, 5,000 years ago, there was some indicators a long, long time ago. But before we dive into that, how is your daughter now? And was there any, because people always want to know what was the one thing? And I always tell my clients, it's never just one thing, right? But if you could say, you know, share with us how she's doing now. And then was there something that was really big that helped move her forward on her individual journey? Um, how she's doing now, she's 15 turning 16 soon. She walks with form crutches around the house. She's now doing treadmill work, but she'll walk on the treadmill for about five minutes at a time. She actually now has actually walked with her crutches to the mailbox and back. And we're on a farm. So our mailbox is probably 300 feet from the house. So it takes about 30 minutes to do, but she'll do that. Um, she plays chess. She actually figured out a couple of sneaky moves. Um, <laughs> um, so um, I'm still able to beat her. Um, but um, so that's where she's at now. And she, we did hyperbaric with her um, this past summer and she started actually being able to write her name. So she's now able to write her name. Right. And so when she's actually started typing on the keyboard. So um, typically kids with cerebral palsy have multiple surgeries by the time they're 15, they've had multiple things done to them. And she at 15 has had no cavities, um, has had an antibox once in her life and has had no surgeries. And every year she's a little better. And that's absolutely hundred percent abnormal in the CP kid with special needs world. So if I was to pick one thing that made the biggest difference, it was actually probably the first thing we did, which was change our diets. Yeah. 
you know, I've done a lot of cool things. We've gone to Canada, Toronto and done Pons therapy, which is an oral neurological stimulation device. We've done hyperbaric peptides, IV cerebral lysine. We've done all kinds of things with her, but the foundational thing that actually started this journey and it's what keep, what's keeping her and our other kids healthy is was actually her diet and, and having a, what I call, I, in my home, we say we're building brains at the Hartman house because all of it, we adopted all of our kids. They all have different, different, di different things going on. And I'm um, having a diet that actually specifically feeds the brain is what we focused on um, for the last 13, 14 years. So. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Diet is huge. I mean, if, if we were to do nothing else, but look at our diet and really nourish ourselves through nutrition. I mean, we wouldn't have as many <laughs> more, the morbid obesity rate, heart disease. We wouldn't have disease that is going on as really an epidemic. I mean, the current data is half of all chronic disease in our country can be directly attributed to eating processed foods. And from Harvard School of Public Health, 80% of heart disease, which is the number one killer and 70% of cancer, which is the number two killer, can be prevented by diet and lifestyle. So half of all chronic disease, so half of everything, 80% yeah. of the number one killer, 70% of the number two killer. It's like, what do I have left, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that's, that's how pivotal it is. And when you realize that 80% of what Americans eat is processed, you yeah. maybe wow. that's the elephant in the room, right? Yeah, I, I know. And it's crazy because it's like, it, people are always searching for like these, this major aha moment. And it's like, it's so simple. It's very simple. It comes down to nutrition, but I will say a lot of people, people I work with is they don't even realize because they think nutrition, their nutrition training is essentially what's been advertised to them. Right? Yeah. Like, so if they're like, they need to get more electrolytes, like, Oh, well, I'll just buy a Gatorade. I'm like, well, what about eating an apple or having some spinach or, you know, so it's, it is, it is interesting. And I think that, um, you know, health education is really, really important, but health education, looking at, um, whole health, you know, versus mm -hmm. what's being advertised to us. So yeah, diet is key. That's huge. Sure. <laughs> okay. So you, you talked about like hypermobility and how common that is. Can you go and explain more about hypermobility? So hypermobility, think about Michael Phelps, right? I don't know if you've seen the picture of him with his arm behind his shoulder. And he's dislocating his shoulder, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and he's like, what, the absolute fastest man in the water in the history of the universe, right? You know, people don't, you know, hypermobility, there's a lot of athletes that are hypermobile. You know, if you're a little taller, you're a little lankier, you can, your joints, you can stretch a little more, you can throw a ball a little faster, you can, you can jump a little higher, you can run quicker. You know, it actually was a back in the day when physical prowess from throwing javelins and spears to running, whatever, actually might make the difference between life and death. It actually was a survival trait. So the problem in is being hypermobile also means you need higher amounts of certain nutrients like collagen, trace minerals, vitamin C. You're a little more prone to inflammation. Okay. So back in the day when infections were, was the most common cause of death actually a survival benefit today when low-grade inflammation and chronic disease is the biggest thing not such a such an advantage so so the definition of hypermobility actually is this thing called a baiton score b-i-g-h-t-o-n and you basically look to see if people can take their thumbs and push them down and touch their arm your pinky and push it back at the double joint at their elbows at their knees and if they can take their hands with their legs straight and touch the ground and you get a baiton score it's looking at major joint hypermobility if you are hypermobile which one in 30 americans are so if you see 30 people, you don't see it once, you know, if the average, you know, physician practitioner doesn't see it weekly, they're not, they're missing it. 
it increases your risk for mild sleep apnea, tissue inflammation, people with chronic Lyme disease, actually the tissues are a little more hypoxic, like your joints than typical. So people are more prone to get like Lyme stuff in their joint spaces. They're more susceptible to mold biotoxins. Well, wait a second. I thought half of all buildings have water damage, right? <laughs> right. 23% of the population has the gene for increased susceptibility to mold related illness. And one thirty people are hypermobile. So all of a sudden you've got this stew, so to speak, for chronic health issues. So you can have people that are super healthy. And one of my patients actually was a soccer player at UVA, which back back when I was younger, UVA was the number one collegiate soccer program for years in the country, right? That level, he was going to medical school, got a tick bite, mm. you know, ended up showing he ended up having um, mold issues that causes Hashimoto's from a tick bite, you know? And so connecting those dots is one of the things I do. And you tend to see more of these inflammatory things in hypermobile patients, which are actually everywhere. Wow. That's really fascinating. I've, I've never heard that before. So thank you for sharing that knowledge. That's, that's pretty incredible. I was sitting here bending my thumb back and my, I'm definitely not hypermobile, but well, your, was, your pinky, actually your pinky went past 90 degrees right there. Right here. That's one. Yeah. Your other pinky, oh. other pinky to take your thumb and bend it down like that. The other way. So you want to bend your wrist, you know, bend, bend your wrist like this. Okay. Yeah. Now take your thumb and push it. Can you get it to, mm -hmm. Not quite. No, well, here it's like kind of like that. You want to push oh, okay. it. Yeah. Yeah. Not quite there. The elbows going back, you know. And the, yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. Well, think about it. There's a lot of athletes mm -hmm. that are that are naturally. It's it's more common. It's going to be more common in, in um, basketball players, volleyball players, swimmers, and gym gymnasts are actually the tricky one because they they tend to be like small and particularly females, small and petite, but double jointed. And yeah. so it's really funny. I've, I have some patients from the local um, all girls Catholic schools. And it's really funny if a young lady, like some of the girls are like, Oh, I hate, I have to wear, have the long skirts. Cause they have to have skirts, like their, their fingertips. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If your arms are long, guess what? Your skirts longer. Right. And so it's really a funny thing. Like you hear talking about, Oh, I, have, I need longer sleeves or my skirts all so long. I don't like, you know, and it's like, wait a second, let me look at your hands real quick. It's like these little clues you pick up, you know, when people yeah. smile, you know, the, like, you know, Michael Phelps, I use him as an example. He's had a couple of pictures of him smiling. You look at his teeth or teeth, his teeth are actually narrow for his face. That's a common facial feature that you re, that's seen with upper airway resistance syndrome, which is the skinny person sleep apnea associated with hypermobility. Mm -hmm. oh and so, yeah, so, you, so after a while you start seeing this stuff, you know, do you grind your teeth? Um, if you have any cracked teeth, you know, do you have TMJ? You know, do you have teeth sensitivity or do you have gum recession? All of a sudden these other things that could be associated with someone's undiagnosed mild sleep apnea that sets them up for all these other things that require increased nutrient consumption and make them make it more having a healthy diet, even more important for those people. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That is so fascinating. I, I'm love that information. Thank you so much now. Okay. So shifting gears before we started recording this, we were talking about, um, like ghee, how, <laughs> you know, it helps, it can help with brain health and, you know, just centuries ago, different indicators. Um, it's like, how did these people 2,500 years ago know that, you know, these different agents or foods or different things could help the body. And now we're discovering, oh yeah, by the way, you know, so can you jump in and just share a few fun little facts of things that you've seen in the medical world that um, you're like, wait a minute, that goes way back in time and we're acting like it's a brand new information. Well, one thing I think are fecal microbial transplants, right? Still transplants. There's a whole field of medicine with that now, treating you know, inf inflammatory bowel disease, autoimmune issues, looking at with autism with kids. 
it's actually been FDA, not FDA approved, but actually approved in the research for treating C. diff, which is a type of infection. Well, it's funny because there was a hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, that actually was doing that in the 1950s, that GI residents were actually doing trans, these stool transplants before they were kind of sort of banned. But wait, wait, wait a second. Before that, there was this book in German, in Germany, in old German, that, that was looking at stool transplants to treat rheumatism and these other, but even before that, in the Yellow Emperor, Emperor's Book of Medicine, they were using warm, warm camel dung. Okay. I don't know who opt who, you know, you must be, you have to be pretty sick to opt for warm camel dung, but to treat diarrheal illness in China, you know, and if, if you know, like certain GI infections with diarrhea back in the day, even now, Norwalk virus kills tons, tons of kids in sub-Saharan Africa. You're getting your stomach flu and dehydration was a big killer back in the day, you know? And so like they somehow, somehow, somewhere, someone figured out that warm camel dung, i.e. a stool transplant, you know, could actually help rebalance the microbiome with people yeah. with, with cholera. And it's really funny because in the vet world, people, you know, you, sometimes dogs will go out and eat cow dung and actually help you know, all the vets. So that's good for the guts, gut, the, the dog's gut, right? When you know about fermented foods and how good they are. Well, now we're getting data on the human microbiome and how right. it can set you up for fatty liver disease, diabetes. If you're young, um, they can be related with autism, with your old Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Um, there's a whole field of data now looking at, you know, aut autism in kids, actually the white matter swelling is from endotoxins, which come from the gram-negative bacteria in their guts, leaking across, going to the brain. Well, butyrate, which we yep. briefly mentioned, which actually is made by a bacteria in your gut. It's a short-chain fatty acid. It's also what's in fermented dairy and ghee, protects the brain from that toxin. And if you're, if you're low in that short-chain fatty acid, there's a nutrient that acts very similar to butyrate. It's called desmethoxycurcumin, or C3, um, and found in turmeric. Mm-hmm that actually acts like butyrate. So maybe that's the link in India, even though they have a lot of diabetes and other metabolic issues, they have a fourfold lower incidence of Alzheimer's than we have in America. Maybe their high consumption of that is protective in that population, you know, and it's connecting these dots and just seeing, wait a second, this is so cool. Like how these people in these cultures figure this stuff out millennia ago. And I think it just, it's like just human ingenuity and the ability to observe things over generations and learn from past generations. I think just, it's really cool. Unfortunately, in medicine these days, we don't, you know, clinical expertise is, is not part of the current paradigm of evidence-based medicine. And I'm like, you know, this, you're just missing such a great wealth of knowledge to ignore the past and what people learned in the past. And um, that's one of the, um, I think one of the downfalls in some of the current practices we have in medicine right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I take a supplement that I actually formulated every day and it has yeah. my human in it. So I'm awesome. glad. And I take that with some fatty acids to help with absorption. So hey, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Curcumin of fat was a great, helps, helps you absorb the curcumin. Yes. Yes. So here's the thing is it's about, I think last I, when I, I heard this on um, the model health show, uh, was Sean Stevenson. He was talking about on average, it takes the FDA and these pharmaceutical companies about 4.2 years to come out and just share, Hey, we made a mistake. This is going on. This is a side effect of a medication. And then earlier you and I were talking about, or we were talking and you said that, you know, sometimes it's like five years on the road, you realize the literature that you were reading and the research is, is shifting and changing. So can you share a little bit about that with us? Well, it's, you know, Dr. Ioannis, who's the, um, an Italian researcher at the PLOS, which is the world's largest online medical journal, published an interesting article looking at half of all the findings and reviewed clinical research that's published, the findings are later found to be false. 
So just think about that. Everything's published in JAMA, New England Journal of Medicine, all this stuff, roughly half of it, we're going to find out later it's wrong. In medical school, I was taught half of everything I was taught in school would be obsolete within five years. Mm. So now it's like half of what I know is going to be obsolete and half <laughs> of what I read is going to be wrong. I mean, it's like, what the, like, what, what do you do? Right. <laughs> right. You definitely don't implement every single solitary article if you read, right. You know, and so that's part of the process. And then when, and the thing about it as well is like new things come up, like there's this radical intervention that popped up in the 1830s by this guy, Ignaz Simmelweis in uh, Vienna, Austria. And he um, lost his career over it, got, got kicked out of the medical society, got jailed for his insanity for this intervention. And was and back then we used to treat insanity with beating. So he got beat, got an infection and died from the infection he was trying to prevent. When we were getting this thing called purple fever from doctors actually delivering the babies. And he actually, his hospital did not have it happen almost at all. And this, this crazy intervention that he invented that took 30 years to catch on was hand washing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, so are we really that much smarter than the smartest Germans in the mid 1800s? Right. And then right. like, well, of course we're smarter now. Then I'm like, okay, another example, you know, smoking, it took 50 years and almost 7,000 research articles before the top doctor in the country, Surgeon General said, you know what y'all smoking causes cancer. <laughs> but yet in the 1500s, the Chinese government was trying to get smoking out of their country that was brought in by the West because they saw how it was affecting their military and the males in the country. And they're like, let's get rid of this. So in China and their culture, they recognized smoking was bad for them half a millennia ago. It took us wiser, more intellectual, brilliant people, 50 yeah. years and 7,000 research articles. And so that, that's part of the problem. It's just medicine's a slow process. And so, and when, when there are oopses, mm -hmm. it's going to take a bit for the evidence to get enough. And it's interesting how like there'll be retraction articles in different journals and they're usually on the last page or somewhere in the back. It's almost like when the newspaper puts something out and they like, oh, we started that article. That was wrong. It's never front page. Retractions right, are always right. towards the back. And so what that means is you only know about, you never know about the, the oopses. You have to dig for those. Yeah. And that's why I think clinical expertise needs to be, you know, you need to, I need to be able to rely on my, my understanding. I've, I've seen over hundred thousand patients in my career, five different continents in the world. I need to be able to rely on that when I'm integrating new information and not just ignore that and say, well, this research article said, I'm like, I know that, but which 50% is it? Right. <laughs> right. Know? Yeah. And like for you, like nobody is going to do things how you do them, right? Like you are unique in your own way. You have your unique own essentially blueprint for this lifetime, right? So you seen what you've seen. No other doctor has seen all the things you've seen. So you can subjectively come in and say, okay, and you can put little protocols in place and things to support your clients. And I think that a lot of times in the Western world, we try to have this one size fits all for X, Y, and Z, right? And I think, well, think that's if you look at, if you look at the way research is, you know, I have a clinical research company and we've done over 60 articles I actually published in 2014 and, and um in Lancet about this antiviral myozoxamide um, being used for as an, for anti-influenza actually back a while ago. So when you look at these, the research that actually you have thousands of patients and you have this very rigid protocol and, you, and you're looking for a couple of data points, which is great for general concepts. But if you walk in my office and I'm looking at you, I have to learn your history, your past, how you react with medications, you know, how, you, how do you react, you know, how's your gut react to the food you eat? your sleep, all these things. And I have to individualize everything for you and, and practice what I call precision medicine. You know, unfortunately, our current paradigm is more, you know, population-based medicine, which is great for populations, but as I only see individuals, I don't see populations. And so it can inform the way you think, but ultimately I need to be able to individualize things to you, not to the, not to populations. That's, I think one of the, 
if nothing else, hopefully we learned the last couple of years, we need to individualize healthcare. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. 100%. So let's dive into that. So we have really, I think we're coming out of this pandemic. I don't know. Right. Like whatever it is, what it is, but then, you know, there's this thing called long COVID and there's a lot of talk around that. So what can you share with us about maybe your experience with COVID and seeing patients, what you've found to support people, kind of the, the do's and the don'ts or whatever from your point of view? I mean, the, the very first article I saw about long COVID actually went back to the summer of 2020. And I started seeing my first patients back then with long COVID. I think, you know, the, a couple of things to think about long COVID. First of all, supposedly about 10% of all people who got COVID will get long COVID. So let's just say it's 3%. That's still a lot of people with residual symptoms and long COVID by definition, you have to have symptoms for 12 weeks, right? But you have to take a step back. There's, there's other entities like post Lyme syndrome or chronic Lyme disease or, you know, post mono chronic fatigue fibromyalgia. We have other examples of post infectious inflammatory conditions. This is one of many. It's unique because it's COVID, it's SARS-CoV-2, it's got some unique things to it, but we have, we already have a repertoire of tools to deal with this. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is that when I look and I see these people that were apparently healthy, who had no issues, I'm finding SIBO and dysbiosis. I'm finding hypermobility. I'm finding sleep apnea. I'm finding undiagnosed nutritional deficiencies. I'm finding mold. You had no idea your apartment or your house had mold in it and you had a low-grade inflammation. And COVID's the trigger. You're building up your, your pile of stuff and COVID pushed you over the edge. And so when I see patients in my clinic with long COVID, I'm not seeing people who had nothing going on. I'm diagnosing all these other things uh, and, and peeling off them and, and individualizing their plan. You know, and there are some things that I've found have had great results with some of the symptoms, like some of the people with dysautonomia and fatigue and brain fog, things like naltrexone, lotus naltrexone. And this, these things are published, by the way, using natural ionophores that help zinc get in the cell like quercetin realizing that long COVID is actually a mast cell activation syndrome. If you ever heard that term before, which, okay. So a lot of people with SIBO and gut issues and chronic fatigue and fibro, if you look at like mast cell activation syndrome or chronic Lyme disease and mold issues, they all sound about 80% the same. And so you start realizing there's a lot of crosstalk between these entities, you know, all molds, not just mold, all Lyme's not just Lyme, all, you know, SIBO is not just SIBO, all chronic fatigue is not just that. These, there's a lot of inner connections between these entities and realizing the connection with that and patients with long COVID, and then individualizing the protocol for the person. But to date, over half of my patients, and I've kind of keep on harking on this, over half of my patients that have, di- that have come to me for long COVID, I've diagnosed with some degree of mild to mild, moderate sleep apnea. And so and, and it makes sense if you're sleeping poorly, if you're not getting deep REM sleep, you know, you might be young and healthy and not feel it at all, but it sets you up for this post-infectious inflammation. So, um, you know, nutrient wise, you know, lots of zinc issues, D issues, C, of course, um, just doing a whole host of things and individualizing my treatment for individuals. You know, that's one of the things that I was thinking is, you know, they, they put out all these numbers and, you know, healthy people are getting sick with COVID and it's like, well, I guess our definition of, of healthy or not having any disease is the fact that a doctor's never diagnosed you with it. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's yeah. kind of <laughs> where we're at with it. And I think so many people are functioning on not an optimal level, but they're so used mm-hmm. to that, that that's their normal. And so they're really getting taken out when, um, you know, COVID or something else comes along. Yeah. I just find it really fascinating because that, that viral load or past, you know, issues that people have had that can still impact them today. Yeah. Well, if you look at our population, 
just standard diagnosis, 10% of Americans have sleep apnea. And this is not me looking, this is just using the typical people with big necks and that are morbidly obese. Um, 80% of Americans have insulin resistance. 35% are pre-diabetic, 15% are diabetic. 30% of the population's overweight, right? I mean, 84% of people with skin color have a vitamin D deficiency. 43% of people with lighter skin tone have vitamin D deficiency. 42% of those over 65 have a zinc deficiency. You know, right. um, if you look at the, if you look at the USRDA data, um, between 40 and 60% of Americans have a, have any single B vitamin deficiency. So yeah, B1, B2, B3. So any single one, you have, you as a person have about a 40 to 60% chance of having a deficiency in one of those, which means everybody has deficiency, at least one or two. Right. So all of a sudden now it's like, okay, so we're all super healthy. Like really? <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's where it goes back to, <clears throat> excuse me, to diet, right? Like our food is so important mm -hmm. and we all know our food isn't what it was 50 years ago as well, because our soil is depleted and all the things, but that's where, I mean, I'm a, I, I really do like supplementation because I, again, it's to supplement your, your diet, but it's not to replace. And I think that yeah. that's really important for people to recognize is that it's not to, to replace a good diet. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. I mean, supplements by definition supplement. Mm -hmm. So right. what are you supplementing? And so if you don't have a good diet, then I mean, you can cover up your, your poor diet with some nutritional supplements, but you really, they, they really need, by definition, they're supposed to be in addition to the basics or foundational things. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh my gosh, this is so interesting. I love having this conversation with you. So is there anything else before we jump off? Is there anything else that you find that you want to share or interesting? Because I mean, I could listen to you all day long. <laughs> I call it my triangle of health. You know, what are the three things that everybody needs to do that mm -hmm. in blue zones, they do well, that actually there's this island in, in the, in the um, Pacific, it's a Polynesian island where 80% of the males smoke and they have no increased risk of heart disease or cancer. Like what are these in these blue zones? What are the basic things that we really all need to do well? Yeah. It's gut health, gut health, stress, and sleep. And sounds super basic, like oh, gut, stress, sleep. It's like, well, your gut's going to affect your sleep-wake cycles. It's going to affect hormones. It's going to affect your ability to tolerate stress-based nutritional status. Sleep affects leaky gut, affects brain detoxification. All these things are interwoven, but just focusing on these three core things can have a massive impact on people's health. And so if, if people get anything out of this conversation, I think just focus on your gut, your stress, and your sleep, it'll change people's health trajectory. Oh yes. I love that. Now, if you were to share with everyone, what are like three things in your day that are a must for you when it comes to your health? For my health personally, um, I got to get my sleep. Actually, you know, got to eat real food. Actually, I'm doing a lot of interval fasting these days. Just, it's really interesting how helpful that is to everything we talked about with detoxification, with mental clarity. Um, and then, you know, and to throw a fourth thing in there, I just need a little bit of personal time. Yeah. <laughs> if I get my personal time in the morning when the kids are asleep and at night when everybody's down, I, I usually tolerate stuff a lot. The stress part, I tolerate stuff a lot better. So I'll throw a fourth in there. Yeah, you know. I, I love that fourth one. I definitely can relate to that. <laughs> you have kids and work and all the things. Yeah. And can, you need time for yourself. For Absolutely. Sure. Awesome. Well, Dr. Hartman, thank you so much for being on the Happy Whole You podcast. And yeah, we'll have to do this again sometime. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And hopefully this will be useful to your audience. Oh, absolutely. It's going to be. 
Thanks for joining us today, you guys, on this Happy Whole You podcast. We are so stoked that you are listening. And if you have questions or want to reach out to us, you can always email us at info at happyholeyou.com. And you know where to find us at Happy Whole You on Facebook and at Happy Whole You on Instagram. So have a wonderful day. Have a great week. And we will see you soon.